Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens with mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And this week we are joined by critical race scholar Dr. Alana Lenton. Thanks for joining us, Alana. Thanks for having me. Alana, we last spoke to you in 2020. The war against critical race theory was at a fever pitch. It seems to have quieted down a bit. The the moral panics of right-wing outrage machine have moved on to other topics. Does that mean also that the rivers of gold that were flowing for critical race theorists have also dried up? Hmm, That's an interesting way of framing the problem. I mean, there's two different things going on there. Firstly, there's an assumption, which I think is common, that you know, the critical race, the war on critical race theory has died down, which I think means that we're not completely paying attention. I can explain why in a minute. And, you know, and the other thing is that there are critical race theorists who were reaping from this attention on critical race theory, which I also think is to slightly miss the point of who was actually profiting from or Yes, let's call it profiting from the uptick in interest in anti-racism, which is, I presume, what you were meant, what, what you were thinking of when you made that comment. But I'll let you elaborate on your question, and then I can I can say what I think. It's possible I may have been misinformed about the profitability of critical race theory. Okay, so I mean, l- let's just go on that point first. I mean, I think what what you saw obviously in 2020 with the horrific state murder of George Floyd in the United States was global concern with the absolutely unabated nature of state racism targeting black people, but also in this country, specifically indigenous people. And the linkages, I think, between those struggles against state racism targeting black people, black and indigenous people and targeting other negatively racialized people. And we can see that specifically now with the Zionist assault on, assault on Palestine, the extent of that solidarity being extended between different different groups of colonized and racialized people to kind of bring it up to the present day. So what you had in 2020 was then the kind of, I guess, the response of liberal institutions because of the nature of the, you know, the outpouring of protest that they needed to respond in some kind of way. I mean, you know, you saw Black Lives Matter painted on the streets of Washington and so on. You had what the the theorist, I, I like to call him a theorist, but he's also a poet and a podcaster, too black out of Indiana in the United States calls the laundering of black rage. So the kind of throwing of money at arts organizations and all kinds of organizations who are doing anything in the space of anti-racism and, you know, politicians taking the knee. I mean, you saw Keir Starmer in the UK taking the knee, all of this kind of thing. And on the back of that, you had some people who'd always been in the kind of the, 
let's call it the anti-racism non-profit industrial complex. So people who write books on this subject, not for an academic audience, but more for, you know, what they call trade books, and who also kind of do things like anti-racism and diversity, equity and inclusion training in definitely making money out of the situation. So, I mean, the prime example is somebody like Robin D'Angelo with her book, White Fragility. I believe she charges about 30,000 US dollars per session when she goes and speaks. And, you know, it was interesting. I think I reported in something that I wrote for the Sydney Review of Books that the many people in 2020 were ordering these kinds of books from bookshops but not actually coming to collect them. So there's a lot of virtue signaling, right, around being an anti-racist. But I think the, the fact of the matter is that, that the actual object of attack, so critical race theory, is a pretty marginal, you know, section of critical, of, of critical legal theory in the United States, developed in the 1980s, predominantly by Derek Bell and uh, Cheryl Harris, Kimberly Crenshaw and other people like that. And it's relatively, it's not something that's widely taught. I think we know this by now. It's not something that's widely taught because it is specifically oriented around the US legal system. And then there are variants of that which kind of extend into, you know, education and sociology and other domains, but certainly in terms of being, you know, the kind of idea that was put out there that it's being taught everywhere from kindergarten to, you know, the end of tertiary education, and that it's embedded in all of our education systems is obviously a fallacy, certainly here in Australia, where um, we did an audit when I was president of the Australian Critical Race uh, and Whiteness Studies Association to show how few courses being taught at Australian universities even mention race, never mind as I say, the specific area of critical race theory. So that's so that's on that. But then in terms of, you know, what's happened to the war on critical race theory and the moral outrage mis- machine, what I think we've now seen, and this is kind of why it's been successful in many ways, is an adoption of policies and legal frameworks actually outlawing the the teaching of what is being named critical race theory, which is not actually critical race theory, but it's anything related to race and specifically in the US, anything related to the thought of black people. So that's what you saw earlier on in the year was the banning in places like Florida of specific courses that had been developed on African-American history and the targeting of specific authors. So not all black authors, but authors who were associated with a kind of a radical thought showing that what's really always been at stake here was to uh, challenge the, the, the legitimacy of any kind of critique of, of US empire, Australian colonialism, British, the history of British colonialism, slavery, the French <laughs> history of colonialism, wherever you find this, there's a concerted effort to attack this and actually make it beyond the pale through the targeting of teachers, librarians, the activism, the, the very much, you know, kind of funded by right wing interests, activism on school boards, library boards, and all this kind of thing. So it's not just what we see in terms of what, you know, what's what, what makes the newspapers, what makes the headlines, but it's very much the, the kind of the quiet institutionalization of this kind of stuff, which of course, just to end on this point, we're seeing coming to, to full fruition in the context of groups like, you know, Students for Justice in Palestine and Jews, Jewish groups uh, being outlawed on certain U.S. Uh, campuses and students, be it in the U.K., France, Germany and elsewhere, being targeted for any kind of mention of Palestine in schools and universities, teachers in Israel being removed from their uh, posts for any kind of uh, mention that maybe there's a genocide going on. So this is I see this all as part and parcel of the same 
institutionalization of what we can call the war on critical race theory. Alana, this may seem like a silly or obvious question, but perhaps you could briefly outline what you think are the uh, faults with the anti-racist non-profit complex and <laughs> why it is why it represents such a danger to or a, a dead end, let's say, for anti-racist struggles in the United States and elsewhere. And here, I mean, we've seen in, in Australia kind of a real uptick in, you know, company, companies proposing sort of anti-racism training. It's quite a, a lucrative area, I, I believe. And the reason I find this problematic is that we, we, we need to be able to critique institutions of the state particularly universities, for example, that are in that are colonial institutions in the context of both Australia and the United States, but also those who continue to serve as, you know, forming young people around certain mythologies of, you know, what the state stands for, what the, the history of colonialism actually is, wherever that may, may be across the West. So when we when we when those are the institutions driving the education or the investment in, you know, certain kind of anti-racism ideas, we have to be very cautious of what it is they're actually espousing. And if you note, if you actually look at the content of the kinds of training and the type of literature that is put out there, you can see that there's a big investment in the individualization of the problem of racism. So although, interestingly, sometimes they'll mention things like structural or institutional racism, actually, when you look in detail at the content, what we're actually talking about is a problem of interpersonal attitudes, which is why there's been a massive espousal of the concept of unconscious bias, which, you know, you can even do trainings in, in kind of, you know, facing your unconscious bias and this notion that all of us are biased towards others and what we need to do is kind of tap into that bias and admit it. And it kind of stops there. So admitting your prejudice, admitting the fact that everybody is racist. So this notion that racism is something that we all have, it's an attitude, it's a behavior, it's a belief. It's completely divorced from structures, from the structures of colonialism, the structures of carcerality, the structures of state racism that continue to make people vulnerable to premature death, as Ruth Wilson Gilmore puts it in relation to racism. All of this is kind of parcels out, parceled out into this kind of self-helpification, if you like, of anti-racism, which ultimately leaves those institutions that drive the reproduction of race and racial capitalism intact. And the problem gets put back into the lap of individuals who are then encouraged to address their own prejudices, as, as I said before, and, and kind of, you know, try to, 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 to feel better about their own complicity. So a completely individualized and psychologized approach is what is being prioritized. And as I said before, into the bargain, people who position themselves as the deliverers of this kind of education and training are those who reap the benefits. Very often, very seldom does this do the profits from this industry, if we like to call it that, call it that, go back to the people who are actually facing state racism. So there's a complete there's a complete kind of divorce between you know the realities of racism and the kind of the reproduction of a certain kind of idea of what anti-racism is, which very often also links to a kind of a, a kind of a middle class respectability politics, because we know who are the main actors who are involved in this kind of training and and how they position themselves very often vis-a-vis -vis those who are again most targeted by uh, the racism of the state. 
Alana, in your book, Why Race Still Matters, you, you have a chapter dedicated to anti-Semitism and anti-anti-Semitism. I yep. thought it was interesting, though. It starts with a little anecdote about Michael Pizzullo, the Secretary yep. of Home Affairs, who uh, sadly is no longer with us. But I thought it was interesting. There's this anecdote about how he got into a little bit of trouble for some of the language he used in defending the Australian asylum seeker punishment regime and separating it from Nazi Germany, which some people had compared mm. it to. But then in his defense of that, he went on to, you know, describe the, the difference between the Nazis and our, our border regime is that, you know, the Nazis were motivated by racism and by hatred. But I'm reliably informed now that actually Nazis were just doing their jobs and it's Hamas that, in mm. fact, the subhuman humans who enjoy what they're doing as opposed to the Nazis who just had to get the job done. I was wondering if you could speak to some of the sort of ahistorical commentary that we've seen pop up since the latest front in the war on Palestine. Mm, absolutely. Well, you're referring, of course, to Douglas Murray, who's the editor of The Spectator magazine, a spectacularly fascist newspaper, I think, or publication who is currently in Palestine, I believe, reporting, although for whom I'm not quite sure. And he wrote an article for the Jewish Chronicle, which is the British Jewish newspaper of note. I think it was founded in 1841 and is the Jewish publication that's been the most longstanding you know, publication in existence. So this is what we're talking about, who published Douglas Murray, an article that even I'm not shocked by very much when it comes to matters of racism, but this really kind of momentarily took my breath away. Because as you were saying, he basically said that we had to understand that at least the Nazis, as he puts it, got no joy from their, I think he puts it like shooting people in the head and dumping them in ditches or something like that. But Hamas is obviously depraved and much more immoral and much worse than even the Nazis because they seem to get joy from killing Israelis. That's the point that he's making. He he says that, you know, the Nazis found it so difficult to deal with because they had to go home at night and drink themselves into a stupor to try to forget what they did during the day and so on and so forth. And I think this is, I mean, it's obviously a historical. He's relying on a book by Christopher Browning. I think it's called The Ordinary Men, which tries to posit this, this notion. He's using a partial history that there's nothing, you know, we cannot take this as a document that actually refers to the veracity of all, you know, experiences of Nazism, but it's also putting a moralist spin on what race is. And I think this was the argument that I was trying to make in my book throughout the book is that, and, you know, I didn't have the example of Douglas Murray yet, but I, it would have fit in with very, very much with what I was arguing. And, and also, by the way, with the point that I was making earlier about this anti-racism, this approach to anti-racism, which very much personalizes, individualizes, and psychologizes what racism is. So there's this notion that it's to do with a moral standpoint. And then we judge situations or people or entities as more or less racist, depending on how immoral we, you know, constitute them as being. And somehow when immorality is in play, then uh, racism becomes a lot worse than, you know, I mean, there's this kind of sliding scale of racism where the more immoral an individual or an entity is, the worse the, the worse the racism is. So it's not about the outcomes in terms of genocide, which we're seeing unfolding before our very eyes. It's literally about how we have racialized those people. So the very kind of, you know, uh, characterization of these people as less or more moral is a form of racialization because, of course, what we do is we 
place those people outside of the realm of those who we consider to be fully human, which is just another word of, word for talking about Western, quote unquote, civilized. I mean, we've heard that language all over this conflict so far. Gazans referred to as human animals, as barbarians, as you know, people who need to be crushed at all costs. All of this kind of language is really the language of, of dehumanization, which places them outside of the realm of those who we consider to be fully civilized humans. Over the course of this recent conflict, the that dehumanization and genocidal speech has just become incredibly normalized. What do you think that will mean for, I suppose, extremist movements in the future, but as the extreme becomes more mainstream, perhaps just politics in general? I think it's very interesting because I think what we're seeing is, of course, this alignment of the far right with Israel both the kind of the extra parliamentarian far right as you know we've seen building for a number of years the open kind of appreciation of white supremacists and far right extremist groups with the state of israel so we see these fascists on the streets wrapped in the flag and all the rest of it but also you know within the realms of parliamentary politics we've seen now marine le pen of the you know of french fascist party come out in favor of his, you know, saying that she's going to defend Jews from anti-Semitism. So I think we need to see this kind of in, in this context, because of course, what we have is this kind of selective humanization and an alignment of the far right who have generally been the drivers of popular anti-Semitism in kind of this adju- adjudication of Jews as the, the human and uh, Muslims, Arabs, Palestinians, and so on as the non-human. And, and because their position aligns with what the majority of Western states and opinion makers are saying about this genocide, that serves to launder their, their fascism, their, their, their white supremacism, and really bring it into the fold. Because, of course, in the past, and I'm not saying this doesn't exist anymore, but it's much less obvious than it was before to make that distinction. You know, the far right were the bearers of racism and liberal opinion was able to say, well, we are not racist because we're not like these extremists. Now, what now do you do when fascists are, or, you know, open fascists are mar- marching in lockstep with, as I say, the leaders of the Western world in their defense of Israel which they conveniently sandwich together with Jews. And we need to be very careful to distinguish between Jews who are not represented by Israel, no matter what Benjamin Netanyahu would like to say. And, you know, so Jews on the one hand and Israel should not be made one and the same, but it's very convenient to make them one and the same in Western states, making this argument that they are the defenders of Jews against anti-Semitism and using this to apply uh, extremely draconian uh, and frightening and frankly fascist laws and policies targeting not only Palestinians, but also anybody who speaks up for Palestinians. And of course, using that as an opportunity to engage in further repression of uh, migrants and asylum seekers and refugees and so on. You're listening to 3CR. 8.55am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital on your DAB radio. Or, of course, you can listen to the show on the Community Radio Plus app. We're currently talking to Dr. Alana Lenton. Alana, you've previously made reference to the instrumentalisation of the show. What do you mean by that? And how do you think it's playing out in the current 
context of the war on Palestine? Yeah, it's really interesting. So I've written about about this quite extensively going back a number of years, and I've tried to argue that the way in which it's you know over since since the end of the Second World War, the mainstream understanding of what racism is is based on this exceptionalization of the Shoah as an event that's kind of completely excised from the history of European anti-Semitism, and certainly completely severed from any understanding of colonialism. So in my book, I wrote uh, about the need to decolonize anti-Semitism. And what I meant by that was to place anti-Semitism in the context of colonial racism so that we can start to understand various forms of racism, including anti-Semitism, to be co-constitutive of each other. I don't mean that they're all one and the same, that we should just say it's all racism and it all works in exactly the same way. Of course not. Anti-blackness, anti-indigenous racism, Islamophobia, anti-Roma racism, and so on. They all, they all work differently, but they're all part of the same racial project, different cogs in the wheel of the racial regime if you like. So by exceptionalizing the Shoah, taking it out of that historical context and that relationality between these different forms of racism and making it the example par excellence of racism in general and saying that is in our past, we have dealt with that, we have moved on, and everything that happens today to other groups, we can we can question in relation to this prototype that we've decided is the one and only true real racism, if you like. And what that served to do was to draw, you know, put a question mark over everything else so that if, if anything was adjudicated as not coming quite up to the standards of what we've decided, when I say we, I mean kind of white Western, you know, opinion has decided that real racism is, then it's not really racism. And this allows us to, to adjudicate that what you're experiencing is not really racism, which is why I came up with this concept of not racism, because I kept hearing people saying, that's not racism. And this is what really what real racism is, and kind of pointing to this kind of historical example. But I think this is really interesting now when we think about it in relation to this re-adjudication of the Nazis and their atrocities in relation to what's happening now in Palestine. Because when Douglas Murray says, and I want to note, it's easy to say Douglas Murray is just one voice and he's a kind of a crackpot. What was extremely interesting to note was the number of German, you know, there were some journalists and politicians and so on who read his article and started to say, you know what, he's got, he's saying something correct here. It's true that the Nazis were, you know, not very happy about carrying out all these murders and so on. So here we have the German state, which is currently engaged in vicious repression of anybody who speaks up for Palestine. So now it's been banned to say that this to, to say the word stop the genocide in Germany. Okay, so you can't even have a protest saying stop the genocide. Earlier they banned a protest that was called Youth Against Racism. So that's where we are in Germany. And these same people are looking at that and and having kind of made the the Nazi case exceptional and built their entire politics of pro-Zionism and repression, again, as I say, of of pro-Palestine activism around this notion that that Nazism was this one and only kind of prototype of racism for which they are guilty, but yes, they're working their way out of it. And also their way of coping with what's known as the memorialization of the Holocaust being the kind of example that everybody else should follow. Those people today are coming back and saying, you know what? Nazism wasn't that bad. Here's this other, these other truly barbaric people who, by the way, are the same people who we want to repress 
and get rid of basically today in 2023, these are worse. Finally, we found, you know, those who are worse than even us. And that's extremely worrying. And I think we need to be very aware of how that works. And just the last thing on that, I think it also is important to note that this constant reference to the notion that what happened on October the 7th, what Hamas did on October the 7th, abhorrent as it is, particularly, by the way, for not only for the people who died, who were killed, but also for those who's, who, you know, families who are still waiting to know what's happening with their family members who were taken hostage, for whom the Israeli government has basically doesn't care at all, right? And many of whom have already, or some of whom have already died in the bombardment. It's, it's extremely worrying when we hear this discourse that this was the worst atrocity to happen to Jewish people since the Holocaust, because that is a technology that, that is a, that, that formulation is a tool that is used to justify the genocide of other people. So this whole idea of never again, right? Never again should this happen is again, never again, but not for anyone, which is why you hear that slogan often used by Jewish people, never again for anyone. Lana, speaking of ahistoricity, there's a few things I've seen uh, popping up that are a little bit ahistorical. There was an academic the other day who made a bit of a non-sequitur about a a fellow presenter on 3CR and the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. I've also seen some sort of any criticism of Israel referred to as a blood libel, which Mm. seems strange to me because that's a very specific thing. I, I was wondering what your take on how some of these uh, phrases are are weaponized is. Well, I mean, it's a piece of what I've just kind of said. This is emotive language that's used to justify these horrific actions by the state of Israel, also in the name of Jews, which is the part that I personally, as a Jewish person, find absolutely horrendous or find insulting. But, I mean, blood libel is particularly horrendous because it refers to this idea that, you know, that there were kind of lies uh, being spread and that, you know, anybody who casts dispersion or, or raises questions about what happened to Israelis on October the 7th is engaging in blood libel or engaging, you know, mythology of blood libel because we are supposed to believe what the Israeli state apparatus and its propaganda machine is putting out there and to date, if you actually follow the Israeli sources, I'm talking about Israeli newspapers, no conclusive evidence of the beheading of babies or the rape of people has been shared. This is information that's been spread through various means, not least through this, these films that select journalists, including, by the way, Douglas Murray, were invited to view, but which you know, haven't been spread in the in the media and so on, despite the availability of hundreds of images, dehumanizing images of Palestinian people. So we so so the questioning public is not supposed to ask anything about this this evidence that's not evidence because we don't have it. But again, it pushes those buttons, it uses that language it refers to real, and this is the horrendous part, it, it refers to real events that Jewish people have suffered as a consequence of, twists that history, and it utilizes it in order, again, to justify genocide. The wars, obviously, and inevitably, 
fostering all sorts of extremely ugly racist ideas, practices and policies. What do you think are the responsibilities of intellectuals in particular to address these matters? To address this kind of misinformation and yeah, so on. And, and the, I guess the response of those who, you know, have the task of thinking about these things mm. and speaking publicly as a, I guess, a, a class of individual. Yes. Um, what do you think responsible, I guess, intellectuals should be doing um, mm. in response? Well, I think we need to do everything that we can to obviously speak out for a liberated Palestine. In other words, I think we need to go further than you know, talk about atrocities and the loss of human life and all of these types of things, which, of course, we must also talk about. But we need to say, particularly if we are doing research in the area of race, colonialism, indigenous politics, you name it, that we stand with Palestinian people for a liberated Palestine, uh, which does not mean any ill effect for Jewish people and other people who live within the territory from the river to the sea. So this is another misnomer that's been put out there, that anybody who says from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, wants to annihilate Jews. What we're talking about is that everybody who lives within that territory must be free. Freedom is the aspiration to which we all commit. So I think that's one thing. We need to be brave. We need to understand that the majority of world opinion is actually with us. So no matter what our institutions might have to say, and many institutions are preferring to take either to take no stance or to take a both sides stance on this. But I think we need to push back on that as people who are first and foremost workers. I'm talking about those of us who, who have academic jobs. We are workers within organizations. So we have a right to organize on that basis and to speak on that basis. That's something that's important. But the other thing that we have to do, I think, is we have to be, we have to think quite carefully and this you know again it connects this question of the liberal anti-racist what we're doing when we produce knowledge on these themes and i'm talking about those of us who work on on the again these themes specifically what are we doing why are we doing it and who are we risking to exploit in the process of doing this work and i say this because a number of us have been very concerned by the fact that there is a silence from many quarters of people who are usually quite vociferous, be it in theory of race, decolonial studies, indigenous studies. I'm not talking about indigenous academics. I'm talking about others who do this kind of work have suddenly gone very silent or worse, have been promoting books on topics related to these matters at the same time as the genocide is going on in a settler colony and not mentioning this. And I know people will say, you know, we can't go by just what we see on social media. But if you go down somebody's social media feed and you see that they're mentioning all kinds of things all the time over the last five weeks and they have not one mention of Palestine, these are people that we need to be very wary of as a community of scholars. And we need to think very carefully about whether or not we can trust those people in the future. Let me put it that way. Finally, Alana, and in relation to your uh, observations, I guess outside of Within and outside of academia, what do you make of the response of unions and the labour movement to the war to date? And also, what do you think are the kinds of useful forms of actions that can be or are being taken? And what do you think are the ones that the kinds of things are being done that are that are not helpful in terms of bringing the carnage to an end? Yeah, well, obviously. (laughs) 
it's possible to get into a lot of trouble on this. I think there are many yeah. people who <laughs> thank you for this question. I think there are many people who are who are really serious in their activism for Palestine. They're extremely committed. They've been doing it for a really, really long time. And and I think every I want to say that I think everybody is scrambling to do what they can. Everybody who's an activist in this area is extremely under pressure at this point. And I don't think that the kind of the shock and awe situation necessarily makes for the best strategizing at all times. And I think that's completely normal. I'm also not somebody who's an activist within unions, so I don't want to speak over anybody. Let me make that clear. But I think that, how to put this, I think that there's a problem with how trade unions are positioned on various issues where there's a kind of material interest at stake. So when people's livelihoods and jobs are directly imbricated in particular industries surviving, then it's obviously going to be more difficult to get people to mobilize. So if people in if people who are uh, activists who would like to take a more direct action approach or people who want to advocate for boycotting, you know, divestment and sanctions are in a situation where they're having to negotiate with unions whose members are, as I say, directly uh, invested in the continuation of particular industries, that's going to need working out, right? That's not something that can be resolved. You know, that we can't find a resolution on the fly under moments of crisis. But at the same time, we are in a situation of crisis. And if we want to have any kind of material effect on this war machine, and on the persistence of Israeli settler colonialism, then we need to be able to hit it where it hurts. Uh, and that is, you know, in terms of the material benefits that Israel continues to reap across many industries, not least the most obvious one at the moment, which is the arms trade. And until such a time that members of unions are going to commit to the kind of action that's necessary to make that a reality. And, and in many places there are, they are. I mean, look at Barcelona, Genoa. I mean, just thinking of some recent examples, but I don't think we're there yet in Australia and I hope we will be soon. Well, Alana, we'll have to leave it there. Thanks so much for coming on. If people want to read more of your work, you have a website at alanalenton.net. Thanks for coming on. Thank you very much for having me again. Well, Andy, that's our show. We'll be back next week. See you later. See you then.
Solidarity with Palestine this Sunday. With the most devastating attack ever launched on the people of Gaza, it's time for all of us to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people. Israel has waged war on the Palestinians for the last 75 years. The Nakba, ethnic cleansing, occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. Israel has now imposed a total blockade on Gaza and declared war stopping food, electricity and fuel and launching an all-out attack. We have to mobilise to show our support for Palestine. 12pm, State Library, this Sunday. Rally to demand freedom and justice for Palestine. No war on Gaza. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. Have you experienced or seen racism against blackfellas? Report racism against First Nations people with Call It Out, an online register to expose racism. Stand up. Be heard. Call it out. Go to callitout.com.au. A 3CR supporter.